journalist is hard, but being a conflict reporter poses entirely different challenges. Our guest writes that she would have her heart broken a hundred different ways. With postings in Russia, China, Afghanistan, and across the Middle East, including recent compelling reporting from Syria, CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, has spent over 15 years covering the world's most volatile places. Hi, everyone. Good morning. I'm Jim Falk, and Clarissa's book on all fronts, The Education of a Journalist, while highlighting global tragedies, also inspires and reminds us of the value, as well as of the necessity, of good reporting. And speaking of good reporting, Clarissa will be in conversation with Elizabeth Souter. She's another outstanding journalist who edits for the Dallas Morning News, the opinion commentary for the Daily Viewpoints page, and the Sunday Points section. Earlier in her career, Elizabeth worked for the Wall Street Journal in New York and Frankfurt. As always, let me remind you that I hope you'll purchase a, a copy of On All Fronts at interrobangbooks.com. And you can always get that 10% discount for all of our viewers by just typing in the code DFWWORLD, not just on all fronts, but any book that you buy. So I hope that you'll make your online purchase today. I wanna thank our sponsors, Sharon and David Gleason. Additional support was also provided by Travis Kelly and Jessica Collini and Linda and Richard Schaefer. And while I'm on that subject, let me remind you how much we do appreciate those of you who have supported our programs. And if you'd like to make a contribution of 500 or $1,000 or any amount, just give me a call or contact Alana Buonrostro at the World Affairs Council. Today we have promotional partners and they are the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and the World Affairs Council of New Orleans. I hope that you'll keep up with all of our programs by going to our website, dfwworld.org, or go to our YouTube channel, not surprisingly, also at DFW World, and I hope you'll share our content with your social media contacts. And with that, ladies, the program is yours. I look forward to sitting back and watching. Good morning, Clarissa. It is such a pleasure to get to speak to you, to meet you via Zoom. Um, your, your book is just a fascinating page turner. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, this is a review of Clarissa's uh, career that has covered just about every major conflict area since 9-11. Um, this includes Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Bangladesh, Yemen. She's worked in Moscow and Beijing as well for various television networks, won the highest honors for television journalism. This includes Peabody Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award, four Emmys and others. Um, a graduate of Yale University. She speaks six languages other than English, Arabic, French, Italian, Russian, Mandarin, and Spanish. And she's currently living in London. Clarissa, welcome to Dallas. Thank you for being here with us. Oh, thank you so much, Elizabeth. And thank you for that very generous introduction. And I'm just, I'm sad that I can't be with you in person, but I'm glad that we at least have the power of Zoom. We do. So uh, I'll jump right in. As I said, I enjoyed the, the book very much as a journalist myself. Um, but what something I found really interesting is uh, as the senior uh, international correspondent at CNN, you have surely interviewed important people, heads of state, CEOs, 
but none of these people make your book. Your book <laughs> passion for reporting on how regular people are changed by conflicts. Talk a little bit about that. Why, why are you focused on regular folks? That's such an interesting observation, Elizabeth, and you're, you're exactly right. I think the only one who made it in um, is Hillary Clinton, who I had interviewed when she was Secretary of State um, talking about what was happening in Syria and America's um, purported support of the rebels, although they weren't really actually doing much in terms of meaningful support. But you're right, and I, I, I think that for me, I tend to find that when you interview powerful people, they lie a lot. <laughs> they tell you what they want you to think about a situation, how they want you to believe uh, their intentions to be or their actions to be perceived. And I always find that a little frustration, frustrating and I find it, it's insincere often, let's say. Um, I don't want to make any, you know, broad sweeping statements. Of course, there are interviews with, with people in positions of power that, that can be sincere and authentic where they are uh, voicing uh, what they truly believe. But let's face it, often the interview is about deflecting real questions, uh, avoiding answering things you don't want to talk about, and propagating your, your message or your talking points, whatever they might be. For me, the reason I love this job, the reason I am passionate about the work I do and the places I travel to is because I get to connect all the time with ordinary people. And I get to hear their perspective on a situation. I get to hear how they feel about a people or a place or a conflict. I get to see what their ideas are about the world, about America. Um, and often these ideas that they have are very different than, than, than ideas that we might have about a conflict or a people or a place far away. So for me, that is the most thrilling and exciting part of the job. That is the great privilege of the job. And it's often in times of crisis and in times of sadness and people allow you into their, their personal space. They allow you into the, the intimacy of their grief. And that's part of the job too is to sit with that grief and to bear witness to that story and, um, and to do the best job that you possibly can of conveying all of that back to the audience, wherever that audience is in the US, across the world. And so for me, that ultimately is, is much more rewarding um, and often more profound than interviews I've done with um, you know, people in, in, in sort of official positions of power, let's say. It's clear that you were able uh, over the course of your career to analyze a conflict better than, than you otherwise would have because you understood what was happening with regular folks. Um, one of the stories that I found particularly compelling in your book was about Abu Ibrahim. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Yes, you are. <laughs> Who is Abu Ibrahim? So Abu Ibrahim um, is a man, he's a Syrian man. He's probably in his early 50s. He was one of the initial wave of Syrian men. He was a carpenter who became sort of swept up in this uprising against the dictatorship of President Bashar al-Assad. And he and some of his friends from the city that he lives in, in the north of the country, Idlib, basically formed a 
ragtag group of rebel fighters. And really they had no idea what they were doing. They didn't have military experience. They didn't have a proper clear chain of command. They didn't have even two-way radios. Um, we actually went into a battle with them and saw a number of people killed, including some really young guys, simply because they just didn't um, have that knowledge or expertise about how to carry themselves in a, in a conflict zone or in, in, a, in a battle. But what was most striking about Abu Ibrahim to me is that he hosted us in his home and we lived in his home for the week that we were there. And that's important to note because uh, people tuning in today probably don't realize that normally as a journalist, when you're covering war, you have a hotel or a place to go to at the end of the day. And so you, you go and spend the day on the front lines and then you can retreat to the sanctity uh, or relative sanity maybe of a hotel and have that space to decompress, to spend with other journalists, to file for the various shows that you may be contributing for. In Syria, that's not possible or it wasn't possible in rebel held areas. So you were living with people, you were living with their families, you were sharing every meal with them. And that brought with it a, an intensity and an intimacy that I had not really experienced in my reporting before. And just to give you a sense of the kind of man Abu Ibrahim was, the risk that he was taking by hosting a, an American journalist, a Western journalist, television journalist, was enormous, right? I mean, um, he would be killed, certainly, for doing something like that. But he didn't care, um, or rather he was willing to accept that level of risk because he was so passionate about getting the story of the uprising heard by a wider audience. He wanted people to understand what they were going through, what they were dealing with, the level of weaponry that they were fighting against. And while we were there, his brother was killed in battle. And I'll never forget the next morning, they still brought us breakfast, which I found incredibly humbling because why on earth amidst all this sadness would you um, you know, be so generous and so thoughtful to still prepare a breakfast for your guests? It, it really, to me, it kind of blew my mind, that, that level of generosity. And I'll never forget watching him eat this bread, this flat bread that they eat a lot in Syria. And he was trying to get through the moment and you just saw his face kind of convulse in tears and he couldn't swallow the bread. Such was the intensity of his grief at losing his brother. Um, and it's rare as a journalist, as I mentioned, to be there for those moments. And it's impossible not to feel moved by that. And of course, culture dictates, because it's a, quite a conservative Muslim culture, that I couldn't do what I would want to do and go and hold his hands or rub uh, a hand on his back. The only thing I could do is just sit there and, and, and weep with him. And um, it was a very intense experience and he's a very, a very special man. I don't know where he is today, as with so many who um, participated in the Syrian uprising, they, they live sort of underground these days. So I'm, I'm not sure where he is. I very much hope he's alive and, um, and he's a, a very good human. You write in the book, and you've said a number of times that of the conflicts you've witnessed, Syria was the worst. What do you think we can expect from Syria? It certainly hasn't been resolved. No, Syria is far from being resolved. I will say that it is 
quieter now in terms of the actual um, armed militarized conflict part of it. And that's because there's essentially a stalemate. President Bashar al-Assad, who, uh, you know, it's worth underscoring again, this is a man who has killed hundreds of thousands of his own people, who has used chemical weapons on his own people, who has tortured and imprisoned uh, his own people, um, and who I have seen with my own eyes, bombs falling on uh, hospitals, on uh, fruit markets, um, so really guilty of incredible um, atrocities. In fact, the picture you're looking at there is of a, a, an MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Idlib province that was smashed to the ground by a Russian airstrike. Um, so Bashar al-Assad though, because he has such strong sponsors in the form of Russia and Iran, has essentially uh, won something of a pyrrhic, I would argue, but victory nonetheless. He controls about two thirds of the country. The two places that he does not control are Idlib province in the north, and then the northeast, which are the Kurdish areas where the US also has a military presence, um, a small one, but a significant one. So, uh, I think Bashar al-Assad would like to try to take over the remaining parts of the country that are not under his power. He's not really able to do that because in the Northeast, as I explained, the Americans are there. And in Idlib province, you now have roughly 25,000 Turkish troops there. So your best case scenario at the moment is what you would call um, no peace, no war. Meaning there is no substantive peace agreement and um, no real path even towards a peace agreement. But for now, there appears to be a, certainly a lessening of hostilities. And the objective would be to get to a place where there's a complete cessation of hostilities. And that maybe in the future, you could start to look at developing a, um, a more uh, long lasting or enduring peace process. I would just say, though, it's important to remember that roughly half uh, the population of Syria have been displaced. Um, some 7 million Syrians have been forced out of the country. And it's inconceivable for many, if not most of these people, to return and live peacefully in a country under a dictatorship that has killed hundreds of thousands. Um, and for many, it's simply not safe for them to return. So in the long run, uh, I don't think that President Assad is, is viable as a leader. But uh, as long as the Russians and the Iranians are um, hell-bent on supporting him, it seems unlikely that there will be any kind of uh, political process that would allow for a transition in power. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. That's interesting. Um, another, uh, as you have been reporting on conflict zones over the past 15, 20 years. Um, 
there's been another major shift that's been going on simultaneously, and that is in the oil industry. And, and I want to ask you how these sort of meet. Um, I found some, so in, in 2005, you began covering conflicts in Baghdad. And at that time, the US was a major oil consumer, but not much of a producer. By 2018, the US was the largest oil producer in the world. How did that, that how has that shift sort of affected some of the conflict areas that, that you've been covering? It's such an interesting question. And it's an important one because let's face it, the US is um, no longer in the business, it appears, um, either with the Obama administration or with the Trump administration of heavily intervening militarily in wars or conflicts in the Middle East. And I think that we need to understand that not just as a sort of logical uh, conclusion of lessons learned, but also um, as a byproduct of what you're talking about, which is that the U.S. no longer needs the Middle East strategically in the same way that it did with regards to oil. Um, and this is a, a predicament as well that the Middle East finds itself in more broadly speaking, and particularly when you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, right? Saudi Arabia's enormous wealth and whatever geopolitical heft that it has is in no small part because it is uh, the largest oil producer. And if you take away a huge part of the appetite uh, for that oil, and if we're looking into the future at a world where oil consumption is going to continue to decline, where oil prices are going to continue to decline, that's going to have a huge effect and impact on um, both Saudi Arabia's geopolitical um, uh, importance, but also arguably on the ability of the Saudi royal family to kind of continue to rule uh, that country in the way that it has been for decades now. Because if you're not providing people with lots of cash and a better opportunity and a better life, and if you are facing in the future a, a sort of potential real economic crisis, um, then obviously that can lead to um, political disenchantment, the likes of which we haven't really seen in that country. And the same goes for Russia, by the way. Russia is also watching what's happening to the world's oil prices and uh, the way that countries like the US are kind of moving away um, from traditional uh, means of, of getting their energy. And they're, uh, they're also having a real think about what that means for them because they have been unable to diversify their economy in any meaningful way. They are still very much beholden to natural resources uh, and particularly to oil. And so what will the impact be as oil prices potentially continue to decline? How will that affect President Putin? Will it affect President Putin? It's a very different proposition in Russia, I would argue, because um, uh, you know Russia is a very different country to Saudi Arabia and um, uh, Russian people have shown uh, a, a large capacity for, for economic duress and suffering in the past. So, but these are the kinds of questions and the kinds of issues that are shaping the world in the background and they don't always make the sort of headline on the evening news, right? But they are a huge part of what is informing um, 
you know, governments and leaders all around the world in terms of what the strategic importance is of different regions, how involved they want to be there. And as we see the U.S. continue what um, some foreign policy wonks have called the long goodbye, which is essentially a sort of protracted pulling away uh, from the region, the Middle East particularly, I think we have to understand uh, oil as being uh, a significant part of that. I want to take a question from the Q&A that, uh, that, that fits this discussion. What will be the impact if the U.S. closes its embassy in Baghdad, part of this long goodbye? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, um, that's on the table now because the U.S. embassy in Baghdad uh, has been continuously targeted by pro-Iranian Shiite uh, militias in Iraq. And uh, I believe it was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo who recently said, listen, if you don't deal with this issue of this constant bombardment of our embassy, we're just going to close the embassy down. Um, I mean, that would have a devastating impact on Iraq for a number of reasons, um, primarily because, you know, the government is still quite weak. And um, these armed militias, uh, both the Iranian-backed ones and others, they have um, a large amount of popular support and they have a large amount of power. And we've recently seen a new Iraqi prime minister take uh, that position. And so he needs to have the support of the US. He needs to have um, that embassy functioning. And it's a huge embassy. I believe it's one of the largest in the world. Um, it is uh, like a bunker in many ways. So it is able to withstand, um, uh, you know, these kinds of attacks. But at the same time, of course, the State Department and, and the U.S. government has to be exceptionally mindful about not putting its uh, employees in, in, in too dangerous situations. So, um, but the implications would be huge because it would essentially mean that the U.S. is starting to withdraw its support from Iraq. And I think more broadly speaking, the U.S. is really having a good think about what it means to be in Iraq in this day and age and supporting the government because a lot has changed. And, you know, the other big player in Iraq is Iran. And Iran is sponsoring these militias that are the very same militias that are attacking the U.S. Embassy on a regular basis. So I think the U.S. is in a tough spot because if they start to pull out more, Iran's only going to take more power. But at the same time, it is uh, a product of the, the U.S. invasion and occupation um, that has really allowed Iran to rise to such levels of prominence in Iraq, where, of course, they did not have that kind of um, uh, power at all under Saddam Hussein. We have another question from the chat that I think is interesting. Um, folks who are listening, if you have questions for Clarissa, please put them in the chat. I'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, this one is, uh, what is the main job of a conflict reporter? Is it simply to bear witness or should it include the reporter's own personal views on the subject? And I'll add to that, um, it, it's clear that you see Assad as, as, a, as a major problem in Syria, and you feel confident saying that because of facts that you, you can lay out. 
but where does that analysis end and opinion might begin? Yeah, I think this is such an important question, and particularly in this moment, right? Where is the line between journalism and activism? Where is the line between uh, fact and opinion? Um, you know, we talk a lot about the idea of truthful, not neutral. And I think that is a good mantra to, to lead you um, as you try to navigate these kind of ethical uh, questions as a journalist. For me, with Assad, I would be the first person to admit, and with my coverage of Syria, that I think at a certain point I probably did cross some lines. Um, you know, you'll read in the book that I wrote kind of a uh, unprofessional, let's say, email to Ben Rhodes, who was the foreign policy advisor for uh, President Obama, and particularly on the issue of Syria. And I wrote him a note saying, Dear Ben, I hope you're sleeping soundly as Aleppo burns. And I'm not really proud of having written that. Uh, I, I clearly crossed the line. But at the same time, I think we also have to understand that um, when you've seen the things I've seen and, and you've seen the, the death and destruction and abject horror uh, of war and particularly with the war in Syria, it's very difficult to bite your tongue sometimes. And, um, but it's something that I'm mindful of. I think that as long as you are grounded in a place of facts, as long as facts are your friends and you are using them to tell the story, and as long as you have other reporters who are potentially covering the other side. So when I was doing, uh, covering Syria for, for CBS and also for CNN, there was always another reporter who would go and spend time on the regime side and cover um, life under Assad uh, from the perspective of his supporters. And it's important to have that balance. You can't only tell one side of the story. But I think that at least in, in the case of Syria, if you're talking about a leader who's using chemical weapons against his own people, is torturing and imprisoning and disappearing hundreds of thousands, it's very difficult to be neutral about that. It's very difficult to per se on the one hand, on the other hand. And I will say that my work also was very critical of abuses that were going on within rebel factions and of the uh, radicalization of many of the rebels and of the ultimate creation of ISIS. So I think that you can, you can do your job, you can be strongly worded um, and you can have harsh criticism even without veering too much into opinion. I was also asked to address the UN Security Council, which is a pretty rare privilege. And, you know, I, I, I let it rip there because that was going to be my only chance to sit in front of the Russian ambassador and to sit in front of, uh, of everyone in that room and, and make it clear to them that we had all failed the Syrian people, because frankly, whatever side of the conflict you're on, I think we can all agree um, that it has been an abject failure in terms of the international community being in, in any way able to avert a, a bloodbath um, or uh, mitigate the suffering of the Syrian people. So, but I think it's a great question because this is the moment where everyone is asking themselves, what is my job as a journalist? 
for me personally, I have been much more at peace as a conflict reporter since I understood my job in more humble terms. My job is not to solve the problem. My job is not to prescribe uh, you know, what foreign policy should be. My job is to shine a light on the problem, to tell the stories of those who are suffering as a result of it, to bear witness to atrocities, to collect as much information as I possibly can that could potentially be used somewhere down the line to prosecute war crimes where that might be appropriate and to keep telling that story in the most compelling way that I am able to do so in order to get as many people to be engaged on it as possible. And now that I understand my role in that slightly more humble prism, that basically I'm there to bear witness, um, I have found it much much less, uh, much less stressful in some ways, because there is a point otherwise where you start to feel like if you're not altering the course of a war, you're not doing a job. And, and, and now I understand that that isn't our job. That, that's so interesting. And it, um, it sort of supports the, the title of your book, The Education of a Journalist. Um, part of that education, it, I think, from reading the book is figuring out how to be a female journalist in the Middle East. Early in the book, you seem frustrated by some of the limitations on you as a woman, but by the end, you figured out how to um, use, these, use your, uh, your gender to your advantage. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. And I, I don't think I'd sort of consciously realized that as I was writing it, but you're absolutely right. I mean, when you first start going uh, to the Middle East and particularly when you're going to more conservative areas and you're a, a, a Western woman, it, it is a little frustrating. And you are thinking, oh man, why can't I just, you know, wear what I want and run around how I would back home and, and, and sort of, you know, behave how I would like to. Um, and that picture right there, just to tell our, our viewers today, is taken last year. I embedded with the Taliban in northern Afghanistan um, for a few days. And I think that gives you a, a glimpse into how I was able to actually embrace um, some of this and embrace my gender and, and use it to my advantage. Because the reality is when I wear a niqab, which is what I'm wearing there, and it actually has something that goes, a veil that goes over my eyes as well. Nobody can tell that I am a white American woman. I could be anyone in the world. And um, that is uh, what some of my friends have jokingly referred to as my cloak of invisibility. And for, that's just one reason that I have actually found that being a woman is, is, is quite an advantage because in some of these more conservative parts, I can go really, really low profile in a way that my male colleagues would, um, would probably struggle to do. Secondly, um, I enjoy this kind of privileged position as a Western woman. I remember people in Afghanistan joking that we were honorary men. And that means that I can go and sit with the men and listen to their conversations, but then I can also get up and go and sit with the women who sit in a different part of the house. And it's important to remember that the vast majority of my male colleagues do not have access to 50% of the population in these parts of the world. They are not allowed under any circumstances into the uh, female quarters. And guess what? You know, women have a different perspective on, on war often 
women are fountains of information often. And I learned so much from sitting with them, from talking with them, from listening to how they perceive uh, a conflict from their perspective. And I believe that that makes my reporting richer and, and more vibrant and, and, and frankly important because their voices need to be heard as well. Uh, and the other thing I would say that's kind of interesting is that as a woman, you're often perceived of as less of a threat. And so what am I talking about there? Well, I know that when it came to covering ISIS, for example, and dealing with jihadis, um, as a woman, it was a little bit easier for me to start conversations uh, with some of these guys. I was seen as a little bit less threatening. Um, it's not the automatic assumption as it is with some of my male colleagues that I am a spy, that I'm with the CIA, um, which, you know, a lot of my male colleagues get all the time. I, you know, and I can sort of, I can, I'm less threatening with my actual presence as well, often. So I can sit in the back of a car and get through a checkpoint maybe more easily sometimes than, um, than my male colleagues. So for a number of reasons that I've just sort of hit on there, I have come to view my gender as being a real privilege in, um, in operating in, in parts of these uh, more conservative societies and an asset. Great. I'll take another question from our chat. Um, oh, now I've lost it. Y'all, I'm scrolling. Uh, if you'll just bear with me here. What is your thinking about the recent Trump administration's initiatives with Israel and Saudi Arabia um, uh, that also includes the UAE? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a good question and it's a big deal. Um, it's definitely a big deal. And I think that it's, um, it's interesting because it's not a typical peace agreement, meaning that um, you know, the Palestinians are not really a part of it at all and Israel and the UAE were not really at war, um, but it is still hugely important. And it's, and it's important to underscore as well, sorry, that behind the scenes and behind closed doors, I think a lot of these Gulf countries have had quite uh, a warm relationship with Israel um, for some time now. And that's largely because the region has changed. And whereas before all of these Sunni uh, Muslim Arab states were kind of focused on Israel as being the primary enemy, in recent years, Iran has really claimed that uh, mantle. And because of this sectarian divide between Sunnis and Shia, um, there is the sense in the Gulf that Iran is the greatest threat, Iran is the biggest enemy, and uh, you know, you know the age-old adage: "The enemy of my enemy is my friend." Following that logic, Israel actually becomes an important ally, particularly for the Gulf. Um, it also opens up streams of revenue. There's economic shared interests, and there's a lot of um, security technology that Israel has that the Gulf states very much want to be able to use to. Um, sort of monitor dissidents in their own backyard, let's say. So for a number of reasons, it made a lot of sense for this to happen. But it also had a huge impact because it allowed, um, it allowed a lot of people to climb down from this brink that we were approaching, whereby Prime Minister Netanyahu had said that he was going to annex 
uh, parts of the Jordan River Valley, right? And even though it's arguable whether he actually fully intended to do that or whether that was kind of intended for domestic political consumption, um, having this deal with the UAE allows him to climb down from that promise without losing any face. It also allows the UAE to present something that might be controversial in a different context to its citizens as, hey, look, we have averted annexation. So this is a positive deal. It also allows the Trump administration to claim uh, an important foreign policy victory and also say that they have kind of played a role in, in averting that annexation, which by the way, they would not have wanted to happen anyway. And uh, finally, I would say for Jordan, it's, uh, Jordan kind of breathes a sigh of relief because if that annexation had gone ahead, they would have been forced to respond in some way and, and realistically they don't have, um, that's not something that they would want um, militarily, economically, and, and for a number of different reasons. So everybody gets to kind of save a little bit of face with this, mm -hmm. and it is uh, an important moment. The question becomes twofold. First of all, um, who comes next, right? So far, we've seen uh, Bahrain and the UAE. The UAE is obviously the bigger power there, but Bahrain is kind of an interesting one because Bahrain would not be able to sign off on this and normalize relations with Israel without a wink and a nod or the tacit approval of Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia really is the big fish. That is the major player. If they were to normalize relations with Israel, that would be something of a coup. And some people have said that maybe that's gonna be the October surprise, although I think we've already seen so many surprises this October, I don't know, I don't know how many more we can handle. Um, but yes, it, it, that would certainly be interesting. What my final point on this is, how does it fundamentally alter uh, the Palestinian situation, right? And I think the Palestinians certainly see themselves as the big loser in all of this. They haven't been consulted. And basically the Gulf is kind of making official what they've known for quite some time, which is that they no longer see the Palestinian cause as being of primary importance. So um, it remains to be seen how any of this can be like translated into positive change for the Palestinians mm -hmm. and their situation and their plight. Um, but nonetheless, it is definitely significant and it'll be very interesting to see who, if anyone, goes next. We have been talking for 40 minutes now without um, using the C word and that's COVID. Mm. A little bit about how um, the pandemic has changed your uh, reporting priorities, your, your priorities as a, as, a, as a correspondent? Well, I was just talking actually to some students before this uh, event, and I was saying that, you know, I came of age as a journalist in the 9-11 era. 9-11 happened in my senior year of college. It sort of turned my world upside down, changed my life, and set me on this career path. Um, to be a conflict journalist. Um, and I think it also reminds me of this moment in the sense that for the first year or two after 9-11, I don't think we fully understood and comprehended just how much it was going to change our society and change our lives and change our perspectives on things. We were sort of um, almost 
muddling our way through the dark and trying to work out the best way to respond without really having a, a strong sense of what the future would look like as a result of those responses. And I feel sort of similarly with COVID in the sense that it is the biggest story that I have witnessed since 9-11. It is similar, you know, it's obviously completely different, but it's similar in terms of just that absolute shock of like, wait, are we in a movie? I mean, just cast your minds back to March. And it's like, you know, one day you're kind of living your life normally. And the next day it's like, no, you can't leave your home. And there's a global pandemic and it's killing people and it's incredibly contagious and we have no way to stop it. And now people can't really fly and you can't see your parents. I mean, it's just incredible. The, the profound, huge effect that this virus, that this global pandemic has had on everyone's lives, right? No one is uh, immune, uh, pun intended. Um, so I think that for the next few years, we're only just going to be starting to see the ways that this profoundly changes our society in terms of how we work, working from home, using technology, um, education. How is that going to change? More colleges going online, will they stay online? Will that change the sort of pricing of a, an education? Those are just like a few things off the top of my head, but what becomes clearer is that the implications and repercussions of this are huge in ways that we're only just starting to understand. The only other thing I would add on a personal note as a journalist is that it is very frustrating. This is the first war that I have covered from my living room. And it is uh, the first war that I've covered, and I call it a war and I understand that it's not a violent conflict, but let's just say, you know, more than 200,000 Americans dead, it's an invisible enemy. Um, it is a war of sorts, it's certainly a race. And just the same as when I cover conflict, I want to show the human side. One of the biggest challenges for me as a journalist has been trying to humanize this story. And it's difficult when you're doing things over Zoom and people are wearing masks. How do you bring the full, the full scope of the heartbreak into the storytelling? I've also been out of commission because I had a, a baby three months ago, so I've been on maternity leave. But certainly one of the things that I'm thinking about as I get ready to go back to work is how can we tell these stories in a way that, you know, not only makes it clear what the extraordinary implications are for the future, but also reminds us of um, the scale of the loss. I mean, we're having funerals on Zoom. This is, we've never seen anything like this. This is going to have profound, profound effects on our society. Well, congratulations on your, the birth of your child. I believe this is your second child. Yes. 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 So uh, talk about being a mother and trying to do this type of conflict reporting. There's a point in your book where you just kind of have a come to Jesus moment about personal risk now that you have a family. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's such a tough one, right? Because on the one hand, of course, you're a mother and your primary responsibility in this world is midwifing these young souls and, into the world and looking out for them and educating them and loving them. And um, I can't do that if I am uh, away all the time. And I can't do that if I put myself in a situation that is so dangerous that something uh, really bad happens. 
So that's my primary responsibility. At the same time, I really think it's important um, that we have mothers telling these stories and doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. I think that we bring a different perspective. I know that my reporting has changed uh, since I had a child. Um, I know that I feel I am emotionally much more porous. I feel much more strongly a sense of urgency and compassion, particularly regarding the suffering of children. And I want to see that make its way into the storytelling. And you're looking there at a picture of me in Yemen. I'm actually six months pregnant there. Um, The civil war was raging and I went to do a story on the near famine that was ravaging the lives of so many uh, people there and particularly children. And it was an incredibly difficult story to do. Firstly, because I was pregnant and I was very mindful of the risks of being there, not so much from the violent conflict uh, perspective, because I really was back from the front lines, but just from the perspective of if something goes wrong, there is no uh, good hospital for me to go to. Um, But also, it was so heartbreaking for me and so painful for me as an expecting mother to see children starving to death and particularly in this day and age and i think sometimes we become a little bit immune to this stuff it's too hard to really allow ourselves to feel it or understand it but the fact that you know that tens of thousands of children are are suffering from malnutrition severe malnutrition in this day and age is um you know and largely because of a man-made conflict Um, and one of the warring parties being an ally of the U.S. using American weaponry. I mean, that's an important story. And I would like to think that that my perspective as a mother brought something a little different to the table uh, and maybe a little more compassion. So I I do believe that that mothers need to keep telling these stories. Um, But I also absolutely accept that um, every story I do, I have to do everything in my power to mitigate every possible risk I can. Um, And and I really try to stay back from the front line uh, as much as I can as well. I can appreciate that as a mother myself. um, I think that's wise. There was a, a little paragraph near the end of your book that captured my attention. um, And that is where you talk about, you start, a, you start in your life to, you start praying um, regularly. At, at the beginning of the book, you sort of talk about religion as uh, w- when people in the Middle East ask you about your religion, you answer Christian, and that seems to be a cultural response. But going through thinking about the trauma you'd witnessed, you start praying. Mm. That how, how do you keep faith after so much of the stuff <sighs> seen? You know what's so interesting? It's it's almost the other way around. Mm. If you don't have some spiritual practice, or this was my experience, and it's obviously incredibly uh, subjective, this. If you don't have some form of spiritual practice or anchor or belief, I don't see how you can survive covering these types of atrocities and these types of horrors. And for me, 
there became a there came a point in Syria where I was giving so much of myself to this story and I was so uh, distraught. So many of my friends had been kidnapped, uh, captured, Austin Tice, uh, the journalist, Jim Foley, my friend, executed by ISIS, Pete Kasig, my friend, executed by ISIS, not to mention the number of uh, incredible uh, Syrians who had become close friends, trusted colleagues, my beloved driver, Ayman uh, Al-Hajji, who was killed um, while visiting a friend in a hospital in Azaz that was hit by a Russian airstrike. So I, for me, the emotional cost was devastating. And it was eating me up inside that I couldn't do anything, that no matter how good my work was, there's a picture of Ayman there, and you can, I think, see just from looking at that picture what a beautiful soul he was. Um, so there's this sense of heartbreak. And then there's a sense of why can't I change anything? Why can't I do anything? I'm, I'm doing the best storytelling of my life. I'm winning all these awards, and yet it's doing nothing to alter the course of the Syrian civil war. It's doing nothing to mitigate the suffering of the Syrian people. And so for me, it almost became a question of survival to be able to surrender so much of this to a higher power and to accept that as a, a lowly human, there is only so much I can do. I can only do my best. And the, and the rest of it is beyond my comprehension. It's beyond my abilities. And to be able to let go of that and say, that's not my fault. That's not my responsibility. I can, I can be okay with just doing my small part. Uh, that for me, was a huge part of kind of recovering from one of the darker periods in my life and, and, and from a pretty intense depression. And having that, uh, that power of prayer and having my day bookended uh, by prayer, for me, it, it's just essential. It allows me to let go to hand over to the universe so much of what I have seen um, or what I have heard about during the course of the day. And if I didn't have that, I don't think I would have the strength spiritually to keep doing this kind of work. That's amazing. Um, and we have a few more minutes left and I wanna try to get to a few more questions from the, uh, from the Q and A. This one is about democracy. Um, I'd like to know your views on democracy as a one size that fits all. Clearly in cases of some of these countries, democracy is a challenge. At the same time, what is your view on communism, socialism, as you have witnessed? That, that's a very broad question, but let's- I know, I was about to say, I'm like, I, I'll take a stab at democracy. I'm not sure we're gonna, we're gonna be here all day if I have to talk about communism and socialism as well. I think, I think it's a good question. And I think the, the sort of perfect way that I can answer it is by looking at the Syria example again, because everybody I spoke to at the beginning of the Syrian uprising was saying, we want freedom. That's what this is all about. We want freedom, we want democracy. And, but what I started to understand really early on in having these conversations was that there wasn't a lot of um, depth of understanding about uh, the institutions that democracies are built on. 
And this is something that I think is often a misconception. It's like, we want freedom to choose our leaders. Therefore, that's democracy. That's like one piece of the puzzle, right? But, you know, democracy is, uh, is a product of like, you know, um, hundreds and hundreds of years of civilization. And there are all these fundamental institutions that need to be in place and functioning um, almost independently of whoever is in charge in order for the whole thing to function. So when I went to a, an area that had been liberated by the rebels, they were really excited to show me uh, that they had taken this territory, they were running it and they were in control of it and they wanted it to be, you know, freedom for everyone. And and the first thing they told me, they said, look, we have even built our own mukhabarat. The mukhabarat are the secret police who are like the most feared uh, people in much of the Middle East, but certainly in Syria. And they're responsible for a lot of misery, right? They're people who would spy on others and report them and imprison them and torture them. And I thought to myself, why on earth would the first thing that you do with a newly liberated area be to recreate something from your childhood, let's say, uh, that was a source of trauma. But because these people had not actually been exposed to democracy, had not lived inside a democracy, had not understood how you actually build a democracy, they were sort of trying to improvise with the tools that they had at their fingertips from their experiences and what they learned growing up in a, you know, a police state and then trying to translate that into a democracy, which very clearly failed and was not possible. So I think that we have to understand that while freedom is something and you know, the sort of hope for a better future for your children is something that I really think all people uh, largely aspire to on some level, um, not every place is, um, is, is yet in, in, in a state where they have or can even fully understand and, and, and start to think about how to create the institutions that are needed to make a democracy function. And finally, I would just say there's a lot of countries right now looking at democracy, uh, particularly in the US and saying, oh, that looks like chaos to us. We're quite happy to uh, continue on our more authoritarian path. Uh, that was my next question. I want to turn the question around. What is preventing the U.S. from going down the road of the conflicts we see elsewhere? We're divided right now. We're seeing skirmishes. Um, and, and our institutions, our, our trust in institutions mm. are declining. Yeah. I think there's two things that really, really give me um, profound anxiety that I see happening in the U.S. Mm. right now. The first one is misinformation. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of false reports out there, a lot of lies. And the goal of misinformation usually is not to persuade you that another thing is true and that this thing, it's just to bombard you with so much information and all of it conflicting that at the end of the day, most people just say, you know what? I don't know. There, maybe there is no such thing as truth. Maybe there is no such thing as black and white. Maybe it's all just a big mess and I can't begin to divine it. So I'm happy to sort of hand it over to someone to tell me what to do. And, to and, and, and a society becomes vulnerable when they no longer have a strong united conviction uh, and understanding of what, what, what is truth and what is fallacy. 
Um, and then the second thing I would say that that gives me anxiety when I look at the U.S. is the dehumanization that I see coming from all sides. And I have learned after covering a conf conflict for more than 15 years now and in many different countries, the way it always starts is when two sides stop looking at each other as human beings and start talking about each other as other, right? As, as in, in dehumanizing language, they label them. And the danger there is that you lose your sense of humanity and you lose your sense of connection to, uh, to, this, to the person who maybe doesn't share your, your views or political persuasions. And, and that's important because it's a slippery slope because once you continue to dehumanize for a given period of time, it then becomes easier for violence to take place, right? Because this person's not even really a human being anymore. They're a terrible person because they believe X, Y, and Z. And so that really uh, unnerves me. And I would just underscore that from outside of America, looking at the US, we still have so much more that unites us as Americans than what divides us. And I just would love to see people taking a moment to, to remember that. And regardless of what political candidate or political persuasion or there is much more that unites Americans than divides them. And I would hate to see this process of dehumanization continue. And I would hate to see more violence on the streets of the US. But right now, it's a pretty alarming situation. We are just about at noon. So uh, maybe 30 seconds on what gives you hope. What gives me hope? I see the worst of humanity doing this job, but I also see the best of humanity. And people do some beautiful things in this world and they are willing to sacrifice things that they love for the greater good. They are willing to do incredibly brave things in the pursuit of a better future for their children. Um, people small acts of kindness that I encounter all the time. They give me faith in humanity and they give me faith that, you know, while there is a lot of ugliness in the world, there's a lot of beauty too. Clarissa, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Clarissa, um, just enjoy so much your work. And I want to encourage everyone to go to interrobangbooks.com or your favorite bookstore to purchase a copy of On All Fronts. And so much that you said in your last uh, answer reminded me of what I've read of, of Pete Buttigieg's book. I have another 100 pages to go today, but he talks so much about the dehumanization that you talked about, the need to have trust in institutions. So I want to encourage our viewers to tune in Thursday as well to hear my conversation with Mayor Pete. Good luck with uh, your family. Stay safe in London. Thanks again for watching.